welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. One of my favorite films this year, hands down, is Friends and Strangers, directed by James Vaughn. It's about a timid 20-something guy in Sydney, Australia, who goes on a camping trip with a woman his age. Skipping ahead a bit, he kind of goes nowhere fast and gets bogged down on a job with a wealthy loudmouth. The movie had its world premiere at the Rotterdam Film Festival, and during the festival's June anniversary celebration, I had the chance to talk with Vaughn. Maybe because Friends and Strangers is powered by casually sharp and funny dialogue, it was a wonderful surprise when Vaughn chose Silent Cinema for our subject. He sent a list of films that he had freshly encountered over the past year, and we settled on a few. From director G.W. Pabst, we chose Pandora's Box, Diary of a Lost Girl, and The Love of Jean Ney. And from F.W. Murnau, his spectacular retelling of Faust. But we also ended up talking about Eisenstein's work, and we got into how these movies have affected Vaughn's thinking as a filmmaker. Vaughn's film, Friends and Strangers, will be released in the U.S. down the road, so look out for it. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw, another installment in my uh, ceaseless quest to find out what people are watching. I will not stop until I know everything about what people have been watching. Uh, also, just because I get a lot of ideas for what to watch myself, this is an extra special episode, though, I have to say. For some reason, I, I don't know, inspiration struck because uh, I was a huge fan of Friends and Strangers, directed by James Vaughn, and I thought, what if we talked about movies together? That's a simple idea I had. I don't know why, but I'm so glad I did because James had a really terrific idea for what to talk about because of what he'd been watching. So uh, we'll get right into that, but let me just introduce filmmaker James Vaughn. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Nick. It's, it's super fun, super fun to be here. I'm very excited to talk about silent movies. I mean, I'm curious, you know, before we go into the movies themselves, I'm just curious how you got on this particular jag. <laughs> yeah, I don't totally know. I think it had been something that I'd missed completely at film school, I think, a lot of people sail through it maybe in, you know, one of the early years, but it just sort of comes a bit too early or something. But I I never had had any encounters. I think I saw Dreyer's Joan of Arc really early on, but it was just, it was too different to anything else I'd seen. And I, I remember really not liking it actually at the time in like 2010 or something when I saw it. Um, and then it was a long time before I went back to silent film and eventually went back to that film. It was like, oh, that's amazing. But still... Yeah, I guess it's easy to put silent film in a, in the sort of box of, of anachronism. But I suppose recently, it might have actually been starting to read Cinema One by Deleuze, mm. which is another another film school kind of, you know, staple that I also had missed and, and knew someone else at the time who was reading it and thought, oh, that looks interesting. One day I'll, I'll get to that. And then 10 years went past and um, finally got around to reading it and the kind of loving attention that he gave to the, the German, American, Russian and French silent film industries as a sort of foundation for the whole thesis was really fascinating. And um, from, I think it was that, that was probably one of the, the inspirations to go and have a closer look. And then when I did, I was just blown away. Yeah, there is a an elemental sometimes even primal strength to them that always surprises me anew whenever I go to watch a, a silent film. And I definitely had that sensation uh, watching the, the ones you selected here. Are you able to watch any of these in like a theater? Partly I ask because in the times where I've tried to program something especially obscure, some series, I would find out that there would be an archive in Australia that would have it. But it would be way, it would be way too expensive to send it. So it was so it's always been like a never never land that somehow has all these movies in the archives. But in the budget I was working, oh, that's with, fascinating. I, I couldn't. Wow, <laughs> I didn't know that. I do know that Australia does have a very yeah eclectic mix of things in archive for different reasons. The filmmaker Gregory Markopoulos, mm -hmm. he was in New York. And then, you know, relocated and that kind of, I know that Australia has one of the biggest collections of, of his prints in the world. And I can't remember the reason for that. It's some strange, obscure reason. I think we did have, yeah, we just had good archival practices for a period there. And that's the other thing about silent films 
we, we do live in this amazingly privileged time to be watching them. Every single one I wanted to watch, there's been a restoration done in the last 10 years to the sort of Rolls-Royce contemporary standards of restorations where, and I love those little spiels they have at the start of the film that go for like four dense slides explaining where the different yeah. fragments of prints have <laughs> come from and the, the <laughs> yeah. you know the Hungarian archive uh, contributed the missing intertidal plates that and just these like amazing stories of where they pick up the scraps right. and put it together but yeah that's just another thing that you know this sense of magic before it even starts this anticipation that what you're about to see was so close to being lost and now I find that amazing too because for so much of film history even for people who are really interested in silent film it was just impossible to see them properly because they weren't they hadn't been restored and they'd been neglected or they hadn't been digitized or they had but in a really shoddy form and that was another thing was just the quality of the blu-rays now and the the quality of the images like the the richness i think it really helps see them in a in a kind of vital way which they would have that vital power that you mentioned that they would have had when they were first shown but when you look at those like vhs sort of transfer to dvd transfer to something else of like the 2000s or whatever early 2000s it's just it is really hard to engage with them yeah it, it's like you're looking through the, looking at them through like smoked over glass you know you just just yeah. you're like you know walking through a blizzard sometimes with some of them and then all these strange kind of I don't know, generation specific or kind of archaic preconceptions about how they should look or how they should be put together or what sort of music. Um, yeah, they just feel like there's just more clarity generally. Mm. But let's start with two films that you chose by uh, G.W. Pabst. I think one of them is an especial favorite for you, uh, and that's Diary of a Lost Girl. If, if you wanted to sketch out a bit, yeah, what grips you about it? Diary of a Lost Girl is a film that Pabst made the same, or it came out the same year as Pandora's Box, which is his kind of iconic, famous film from his his silent period. And Diary of a Lost Girl also stars Louise Brooks, who's the radiant star of, of Pandora's Box. But for some reason, Diary of a Lost Girl doesn't seem to have been given the same attention. But when I, I saw... Pandora's Box and really appreciated it. There's so much going on in that film and it's so epic in a way. The unstoppable force of the most seductive woman of all time, you know, just sort of wreaking havoc through the cosmos until she meets, you know, the only thing that can stop her is this iconic serial killer at the end. And it's just kind of like, it's wild. But uh, I, I didn't, on a visceral level, really... I wasn't drawn in like I was when uh, the first frames of Diary of a Lost Girl began. And one thing I should say, which I've noticed about my experience of watching a lot of silent films over the last year is how much the soundtrack <laughs> changes the, the experience. And when it's sometimes if I'm really not liking a, a soundtrack, I, I think the good thing about a lot of the re-releases is they give you a choice yeah, and you can choose. But sometimes even a few of them, you know, you go through and none of it's really clicking. But sometimes, yeah, I'll even put on something else if it's just really not working but with Dara of a Lost Girl I have to say it's probably influenced how much I love the film because it's got to be the most beautiful soundtrack if not of a silent film than just of any any film and it's obviously not Pab's soundtrack it's some guy I think he's in Argentina uh and I think I actually tried to add him on Facebook and he didn't he didn't accept my request <laughs> but uh <laughs> but I will try and get onto this guy because <laughs> I think it's a combination of original compositions and like and some classical music things that he's picked out, but it's just the most, I just listen to that soundtrack now. I don't even I have to watch the pictures, but together with the soundtrack, there's something so inspired about it. It's just the most, I don't know, heartfelt. It's potency, like the, the potency of everything that an image, everything that cinema is capable of doing as a kind of abstraction of experience, but at the same time as as just a, a real, you know, realistic depiction of experience, but at the same time an abstraction of the experience of experience, which is, I think, the amazing thing that silent film can do. It has that one step removed from the reality that we, we're so familiar with and take for granted. And it is in, in many ways a more abstract art form. And I just think we're so lucky to, as people who you know love a medium and work with this medium now that uh, has sound in it, we're so lucky that it came out of uh, silent film because it is 
it's the same, but it's different. And there's so much, I just think there's so much we can learn from it. I know anecdotally, I think there are a lot of the, the silent filmmakers were devastated when sound was invented because right. they, they felt like they were really getting, starting to get somewhere with, with the art form and what it was capable of. Obviously, Chaplin, Andrea too, you know, kept making silent films into the well after sound had, had come in and there was this reluctance to let it go. But back to Diary of a Lost Girl, the story essentially is the daughter of a, of a pharmacist, uh, Tymian Henning, is raped early in the film by this arch villain, Fritz Rasp, who's, who plays a villain in, in just about everything he's ever been in. And he's just incredible. His face is just so expressive everything he's in my appreciation doubles and i just wonder as well what influence he's actually having on some of these films that i love because every film he's in i'm i'm kind of obsessed with and when he leaves that when he leaves the the scene or the you know the sections of the film in jean nay where he, he disappears for a while and, and in diary of a lost girl and i'm just kind of waiting for him to come back but he's He's this sort of demonic character that takes advantage of Tymian Henning in, in the early parts of the film. And then she yeah, just suffers this list of misfortunes after that. In some ways it's yeah, it's exactly what you'd expect from a from a sexually conservative period of time. I'm not sure whether the, that film is actually set in the present uh, or if it if itself was set in maybe the the nineteenth century. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't actually worked that out, but um but it, you, you stay with Tymian and, and Louise Brooks just has this kind of enigmatic, this kind of ambivalence that she brings to every scene, which I think is the same thing that I love. Yeah, all my favourite silent films have. You think of a silent film and the scene is like, oh, there's, a, there's someone's done a deal and they're really happy about it and it's all like the music's really up and it's all very one note. Uh, I think that's like the sort of stereotype of silent films is that they're sort of one note uh, often. But I think all the, the genius of, of the great silent filmmakers is that they're manipulating that. You know, on one level, they're showing that. And then on another level, they're inverting it or subverting it. And performers like Louise Brooks are just the perfect expression of that that capacity, that like that ambivalence, where she's she's sort of saying so with a look, you know, or a smile, she she says a hundred things at once and you you sort of choose in a way what you think she means and She's very elusive and I guess the inner goodness of this character that resists every attempt by the world, I guess, to destroy her and the ease that she maintains her, her dignity throughout and in the end just completely vanquishes evil, you know, with this act of generosity, this remarkable act of, of generosity at the end. I guess all of the films I've really been loving do have this kind of optimism too, which seems, I don't, I don't know if it was a, a 20s, twenties thing or or if it was more, you know, just a commercial thing like what we associate with Hollywood and that the happy endings. But right. Yeah. The similar with Faust, I guess, the you know, the ending there's this kind of faith in humanity in a very enlarged kind of way that films today often don't try to, to speak for humanity anymore. <laughs> yeah. Or if they if they do, it's somehow doesn't transcend in, in the way that just like, as you said, like a fundamental gesture as uh, Louise Brooks makes at the end of Diary of a Lost Girl can do. And I, I really feel what you're saying ab about that optimism because, yeah, it, there's a liberation to it. It's freeing. It's somehow freeing. I don't know how to describe it. And mm -hmm. maybe... Maybe there is something about the time period. I mean, not to reduce the films just as a product of time, but it's hard to forget, you know, uh, and it's, I guess it's a little bit in, in Jean Ney, uh, just the upheaval. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> we don't, we don't have to jump to Jean Ney now, but that as well, you know, as we'll talk about is, is set in the, you know, immediate aftermath of the Russian revolution. But, you know, even Diary of a Lost Girl, there just does seem to be some sort of chaotic energy in the world. and. I was stunned with both of the films how uh, ruthlessly they, they find ways to take down the, the women at, at the center of them. Mm. And they keep somehow, you know, bobbing to the top, eventually just surviving. But the, he, mm. I mean, he just, he throws so much at them. But it's also, demonic is a great word for, for Fritz Rest because it, it, he just seems like this uncontrollable force of just predatory, like libido and yeah. leveraging 
every situation in some way. Um, mm. And I don't, I don't know. I was really impressed by Pabst, um, how he sketches out those scenarios. And, and just to jump back to what you were saying at the beginning with, with just the, the abstract sense to the storytelling, it's so compact. You know, the first 15 minutes, Diary of a Lost Girl, I was kind of gasping for air, just trying to yes. process everything yes. that occurs. <laughs> they set up so much in those 15 so minutes. So much, yeah. My, it's probably my favorite, my favorite 20 minutes of, of cinema ever, maybe, is that, that first 20 minutes. It's just the rest of the film I love, but I could just watch the first 20, 30 minutes again and again and again. It's just every single, every single cut, every single transition, every single exchange of glances and and the way that the action moves and our experience of the person on screen, uh, the way that Pab sort of moves us from one character to another in this chain of uh, cause and effect, but with this, yeah, this humanity and this depth that is just so amazing. I don't, I'm really a bit obsessed with that film. And yeah, like you said, so much is, is set up there and he plays so many, so many things off each other. Even the way the rape is presented, like there's this ambivalence at every at every stage, you know, and, and the way her character kind of almost faints, you know, when when the worst things are happening to her. I don't know how much of it that is Louise Brooks and what she brings to it because she does very similar sort of thing in Pandora's Box where she's playing the kind of opposite character, I guess, in that where she's the agent of destruction in that film. But there's this kind of innocence or you know passiveness where she's at the center of of everything that's going wrong but she also doesn't seem to be the the agent of it somehow and so yeah the way that Pabst presents perpetrators and victims he gives you everything you expect to see perhaps when you think of those you know the category of a victim or the category of a perpetrator but there's always something in there that complicates it and not in a in a literal or or totally clear way, but you just never feel quite sure what you're looking at. Is this what you know he wants us to see? Is this what we would expect to see when we look at a scene play out, you know, between with this kind of power dynamic? Or is this how the characters would like us to be seeing them? I think all the best silent films, yeah, really have this this oscillation between the sort of center point of subjectivity and or center point of perspective and and I was thinking about Ford's films, the Westerns, where those in-between scenes where you've got, you've just had some some great standoff moment between two characters, but then there's the the scene where, the, you know, 50 horses are sort of running running over a river and there's that kind of trumpet, that ridiculous mm. sort of fanfare music. That side of Ford's films never really made sense to me. It seemed like dumb or something, you know, like, oh, how can, how can it, be so all, all the rest be so finely tuned and then you have this really kind of one-dimensional parade it almost seems like like propaganda for this way of life or that you know how these characters would want to be seen or how or what's going through right. their head as they're charging across the, the desert but then yeah seeing going back a little bit like von Sternberg's films and and then back his early sound films uh, I think it's dishonored where but then in most of his films he does similar things with these you've got these very complex unlikable often figures in male figures in in power and then then they're presented in in the context of these this military kind of fanfare and which is so over the top and so one-dimensional but there's clearly it's clearly undermining and it's clearly like a, a sort of irony that he's playing with there. And then I think with Pabst, it's that same thing. I think it helped me see some things, the way sound can be used, I guess, as one of the tools in silent film to kind of play with this point of view. Are you are you looking at propaganda? Are you looking at the propaganda of, of an experience, you know, from a dominant position, someone winning and you're on their side and so the music is triumphant or is this sort of making fun of or taking the piss out of the idea of presenting something in such a one-dimensional way? Is it an ironic kind of presentation? And I feel like all the best silent filmmakers really understand that mm. and play with that in such a yeah, magnetic sort of way that something about language, you know, once it's introduced, we lose a bit of that ambiguity somehow. Yeah, I mean, because you you go into it in a kind of unmediated way. There's no dialogue necessarily to mediate, condition what you're watching, I guess. And yeah. 
And I wonder if that's at play in, in maybe a little different way in Diary of a Lost Girl when she finds she kind of falls in with what I guess, I mean, it's kind of like a, I don't know, like a good times house or something or like, yeah, yeah. At which, you know, eventually it's clear that she's expected to uh, not just dance with, with the men who come to hang out there. But initially it seems like, oh, maybe she's found a place, mm. uh, you know, some kind of sisterhood. There's always this, I don't know, undermining of, of trust that goes on in, in, in the movie to kind of pull the rug out, out from under what, what you're going to see. Yeah. I mean, there, I guess there is one scene where it's kind of unequivocally taking down this kind of a propagandistic structure, which, which is the reformatory, mm. which is his own kind of set piece. And, and, and maybe yeah. the, the kind of, the kind of silent set piece that, that people might think of when, when they're making, you know, like when Guy Madden. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Very supercharged like that. Yeah. I have to admit that section, it, it goes turbo <laughs> and maybe some of the, the ambivalence is, is not really there in that section, although it's it's amazing um, that crescendo he builds to when the, as they're all eating, yeah, and the the matron is kind of whacking the the drum and getting herself into this kind of ecstasy. <laughs> yeah, it's this kind uh, of frenzy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he has these these flourishes, and I guess in 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 a lot of his films, um, is not is not afraid to have radical changes of tone and mood and to try things like he uh, it's it's definitely there in pandora's box you know the theater scenes mm. they're, they're kind of like it's sort of french or at least the way deleuze kind of categorizes the, the differences between french and german and, and russian cinema and montage at that time like the the sort of impressionistic flurry of of images and motion and and things whirling around each other and he flicks from this like super expressionist German style into that French kind of style. And then in, in Jean Ney, it's, mm. you know, it's like a Russian, it's almost like his tribute to Russian cinema. And I don't know how much of that is, you know, at the time it was like, whether that was a really obvious gesture and everyone knew saw that for what it was or whether, yeah. Right. I don't know, but that's something else I do really like about silent cinema. I mean, it's like Napoleon, Gantz's Napoleon is just an, another example of this kind of freedom to, just put every single idea you have into <laughs> into right. into one thing. Every idea of language, of image, of montage, not in a in a completely unmoderated and wild and you know unrestrained way. Like there's still a, a huge amount of refinement. But yeah, it's almost I don't know whether it was be, being in this kind of peak modernist period that they were creating things in, being surrounded mm. as they were by these you know avant garde artists of musicians and I know, I know in Germany and in France and in Russia they were they were all hanging out in the same circles with the avant-garde theater makers and musicians and painters at the time and they were that energy was there but there's just this this enlarged ambition for what cinema is capable of of expressing that we look at kind of cynically now and yeah yeah scoff at it a little bit maybe have a tendency to but I I really love that yeah, I do too. Just the, just the density of effect and affect in a way. Yeah, I say excess in a good way, but like the excess of von Sternberg in, in like Docks of New York, the whole barroom, mm. the frenzy of motion, but the play of of shadow and you know he just every single inch of the screen has some sort of cross hatching uh, going on mm. um, to the point where again, yeah, it's like it's ultra it's ultra physical because it's all this netting and things like that and people's patterns on their dresses or whatever. And, but it's also almost abstract. Yeah. And the weird thing is that it's also at a time where, you know, you'll have kind of holdovers of theatrical acting or different styles of acting that are all coming together. Yeah. (laughs) I'm really grateful that you singled out Fritz Rasp. I don't know if it's Fritz Rasp. I guess it should be Fritz Rasp, but I don't know. But (laughs) I don't know how to Rasp. Okay. Fritz Rasp because just like in Diary of Lost Girl, to start with that, so I guess some of my favorite actors are those who are able to slow time, mm, yes, wrap space around them in a way, and uh, yeah. he, you know what I mean? I he has that. I mean, partly it's because he's creeping; he's always creeping on the <laughs> yeah. and so that's that's part of the creep. 
But he, it's also great to contrast it with Jeanet. You realize how much it's in his choices there of mm. being this like lurch like character and filling up the screen almost like the, the devil in Faust when he's in there, you know? Yes. But it, I don't know how he does it because yeah. it, it's, it shouldn't work, you know? It's a style of acting that should just seem like a cartoon and should be really one dimensional and irksome but he again manages to and i don't know what school of performance he he'd come out of at all but i imagine that that theater was dominating the way actors were trained at that point but it doesn't and it should come across as theatrical and it is theatrical but there's something so cinematic about the precision of of his gestures and his awareness of the camera and his awareness of the space and they're, they're exaggerated but restrained at the same time right yeah, I, I just puzzled over, tried to watch some of his scenes. There's a kind of the gawk, you know, this kind of stupid gawk yeah. that he does when the mistress of the pharmacist runs out and drops a bundle of things as she's as she's leaving the pharmacy in disgrace. And he said the way he like his mouth is just half open and he just he sort of just leans leans towards a like a like a zombie. It's almost like an expression of the inner motive that drives him, you know, a personification of lust, of greed in a way that, yeah, if you, if you tried to, if you weren't a really skilled actor and you did that, it would just be cartoonish. And I think that's how we do think of silent cinema when it's not great are these cartoonish reductive representations of joy or of fear. And, but when it's done by people that are, a masters it, it covers all the levels of how we experience things how we see them but also how we feel them in a way that yeah defies defies language and that, that i guess that's what you know cinema has is that it's irreducible when it's when it's perfect it's you can't explain why why with the von Sternberg scene there's there might be no narrative even happening that there's no intertitles there's nothing really going on it, it's just a play for for a minute or something of light and movement and people looking at each other and it's just, you can't really put it into words why why it ends up being moving yeah yeah when it works it's it's so special and i feel like I don't, have you read the virginia wolf essay on silent film no i was just reading to the lighthouse though that's that's what i'm currently working slowly through but what did she say i don't know when it was written i think maybe 1924 but it's got to be one of my favorite things ever written on on cinema because she's she's trying to work out how she feels about it and obviously this very early point and who knows what she the only film she references in the essay is the cabinet of dr caligari and then who knows what else she had seen mm-hmm. but she's kind of reckoning with the same things we reckon with now when we are trying to work out sound cinema like is this just the dumbest thing ever is this <laughs> is this like you know a king meeting meeting a a peasant and we see a handshake and is this just like idiocy or is, (laughs) or is there something more here? And she, I think her final image is that film is unlike all the other art forms, which were born naked cinema was born fully clothed in that with the other art forms, they, the tools that they had at their disposal were totally rudimentary and they were refined slowly over time as the understanding of, of the mediums grew. Whereas with cinema, it's like caveman finding violins and, you know, the the finest like Mm. concert pianos and just not really knowing what to do with them, bashing them. And this was what she sort of saw with some of the early cinema. But I think if she'd written the article six years later and had seen where it got to in such a short period of time, mm-hmm. maybe she would have... She saw the, the immense potential for this kind of wordless experience of reality that defies languageification or, or whatever the, the word yeah. is there. And she was very excited by that but didn't think it was, it was happening at, at that point. But, yeah, it's really worth reading. It's not long. Oh, yeah, I, w- I will look that up. Thinking about it, I'm trying to figure out some of the like disparities in, in different filmmaker styles and what and what she might have been seeing. I mean, what's also been funny about funny and you know weird about silent cinema is that so many of the movies that stick in popular consciousness are these strange extremes, like The Cabinet of Caligari, um, something mm. like that, or you know, an Eisenstein, Potemkin, or something. Um, and mm. a lot of what's curious there is 
I mean, there's something about tempo as well. I guess that's that's something that also strikes me about these movies. Just like in, in Diary of Jean Nay, the constant kind of movement between this these two tracks of like a Joseph Conrad secret agent style world of yeah. like Russian Revolution uh, <laughs> refugees who are just escaping into Paris and like infusing it with this crazy energy. Mm. And like chief among them being Fritz Rasp as I guess just kind of, it has one of those great title cards of like, I don't know, the schemers that are unleashed from from the Crimea or something like that. And he's like number one and they give him a mustache, which is just like, no one should trust that guy. A single like (laughs) between the mustache and the little tie he has. Yeah. But that, that going on, and then, you know, this kind of interesting mix of kind of thoughtful and, and sly and these interior states you get with Jean Ney, her character, mm. which is another skillful thing that goes on there. I imagine if Virginia Woolf had seen something like that movie as opposed to, yeah. you know, Cabinet, which is great, but it's, yeah, yeah she, she might have gotten um, a different sense of the tools. Yeah, definitely. And, and you wonder the way that silent film has been sort of boxed for popular consumption, you know, the way it's taught and, and these sorts of things that I'm just wondering about all of it now, really, like whether the wrong, yeah, the wrong films have been memorialized in some ways or not necessarily the wrong films, but just there's so much more, uh, it seems like than, and again, that probably so much of that is just due to the fact that these films are being restored and seen now for the first time. So it's an exciting, t- it's like a privileged time to be interested in this stuff because you don't have to calling national archives or uh, organizing screenings and having prints shipped anymore you can see them uh, in really high quality through commercial releases of blu-rays and things yeah so we're so lucky that we have the position to be able to reevaluate them but i do feel like yeah it's interesting like Bresson. i remember looking at some list you know where filmmakers and critics and people were being asked to submit their favorite films and like a, like a top 10 and Brisson had only put in two and they were both chaplains, <laughs> which is not what you'd, you'd expect from him, but in some ways it makes <laughs> right. perfect sense. But yeah, I guess there was that period where the memory of these of these filmmakers, you know, for people making films in the, in the 50s, 60s, it was like living memory for some of them, silent film era. But then, yeah, by 70s, 80s, 90s, it, every generation feels like has to, has to rediscover it for themselves. Yeah. I mean, I have I have to ask through those lenses, you know, what you kind of glean from these movies or, or what you especially, you know, I, I think of like Scorsese, like having TCM on while he edit, edits, you know, turn it, <laughs> something like that. You know, as a filmmaker, what do you what do you admire about it? Or what do you get from it? Yeah, well, it's a really good question. I I've only started watching them since I, it was while I was cutting um, Friends and Strangers so that film was already that film at that point. Um, it it sort of mingled in to that process through the soundtrack a little bit. Part of the re-releases of, of a couple of films, the music that then gets recorded for the DVD or Blu-ray or whatever, they're still contemporary, I guess, recordings, but of these old old films. I used a few of those. that they, they kind of um, found their way into the opening and closing credits of Friends and Strangers. But other than that, the film was going to be resistant to any new inspiration really by that point. But at the same time, yeah, it, it was it had kind of blown me wide open. And um, for the next film, I I don't know how it's how it's going to influence things, but I think it will in a big way. Even just being open to the idea of of making a silent film. I can't see a good reason why that should be something that the people just don't do anymore. I mean, I know it's it's not it's not a new thing. There's that beautiful sequence in Gomesh's Taboo, you know, where it, where it just goes quiet for for a long period. And there's a film out at I think it was Berlin this year that I'm really keen to see. The Georgian film that has a lot of I think I don't know if you, you've seen it. Is it oh, what yeah. we do when I... we look at the sky? Yes. I couldn't quite work out whether it's totally silent or it just has silent sections, but that looks amazing. I, I can't wait to see that. That's really interesting to think of it in those terms because now that I think of it, that movie's kind of like a city symphony in some some curious way. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's a, it's definitely a mix of there's sound, but it's, it has that sense that kind of expansive um, sensibility. Well, yeah, I suppose I I was always suspicious of music in films. 
and feel like it's often overused and friends and strangers i imagine to be completely silent except in terms of the soundtrack except for the section where there's that music coming in from next door but watching silent film it's made me almost go the, the, the opposite way and become less interested in dialogue i guess and more interested in experimenting with extended periods with that are just about gesture or, or montage you know and maybe with music maybe maybe not but um it's made me more interested in, in a different way of thinking about composing scenes whereas before it had been very the writing process was dialogue first and then build the narrative and plot points or, or characters or, or or whatever from there but but start with exchanges between maybe people you don't even know who they are but um something of interest and um, see where it goes but I don't know how it's going to affect the next film but it will it definitely will because like now watching films from beyond the, the silent era there's they just seem kind of decadent you know like there's so much talking and but it's it's not as interesting as, as watching people express a feeling or a mood directly somehow everyone cloaking what they do in in the sort of deception of, of language rather than seeing a representation of states of mind which which you get with silent films. I don't know how it's gonna how it's gonna yeah, what what I'm gonna take take from it. But um one day I'd like to make a silent film. I don't know who who would want to see it. <laughs> Possibly no one, but um that sounds that sounds really fantastic. <laughs> Hearing you talk about like, yeah, the states of mind that with silent movies, there is a way that they become like these reflecting pools, you know, with, with certain mm. scenes or moments um, and way beyond what really remains conventional la- later on. And something like Faust, where it's also a story that is, you know, so mythic, mm. you know, what, given what you were just saying, I'm curious what uh, appeals to you about Faust. It's a movie that just, there's kind of a frightening intensity yes to some of the scenes in it i don't know i wanted to hear what you what you thought about that yeah it's a gutsy thing to do but i guess there were adaptations were pretty common but yeah taking a you know sort of masterpiece of of german literature and to be honest i haven't read faust so uh it probably for for people who have read goethe's masterpiece they may watch this film and go what a joke what a waste of time but taking the, the source material aside, just the, yeah, exactly as you said, the frightening intensity of every frame of that film is just filled with uh, a war between God and Satan. And I think it's it's amazing. Why, why should cinema, why should any art form shy away from the extremes of the human experience? It's not necessarily to me about God or believing in God or Satan, it's about the idea of good, the idea of evil, the idea of temptation. Yeah, where we classify someone, that the way that they, that the devil and, and God are sort of wagering over the soul of Faust at the beginning and they're standing over the city, you know, and the angel is like up in heaven with the sword pointed down at the devil and the devil is standing there played by um, Emil Yannings who's kind of hulking over the city with his, his huge Batman kind of cape. It's so, in some ways, yeah, different to, very different to Pabs because it doesn't hit you with the same kind of ambivalence. You know that there's almost like a frankness to it that's over overwhelming. Everything is dialed up to the extreme. But there's a sophistication in the way he... Yeah, he leads from one one scene to the next and you see it, it's like how does good become evil and how does evil become good? And he takes you through those those stages step by step and perhaps the, the sophistication of that comes from Goethe, you know, maybe he's, he's just following what's in the in the source there. But I, I, I don't know, it just the light and the dark, the intensity of, of every composition. In the, the, again, like speaking about films, in the in the first 20 minutes some of those those crowd scenes and it's funny actually that film with the plague too i, I couldn't help of course think about covid and all oh, right thought it, what, a, what a great covid film it is but yeah the way he, he captures the panic the, the extremes of the of the human experience it, it's like um 
Greek sort of heroes, you know, looking at ultimate glory or ultimate doom or everything is dialed up to the, to the absolute, this operatic kind of maximum. And then in the end, it's, it's another really optimistic film in a way, the sacrifice he makes at the end that redeems him. I guess Faust himself kind of drops out of the picture for like maybe the fourth, <laughs> fourth, fifth, right? I mean, because they focus on, on the young woman that he, he had been courting and chasing. Yeah. And her just trials and tribulations and she just becomes, she, it's like she receives the brunt of, of everything. Well, he, he jumps into the flames. He sees her and what he's done as she's being burned on the pyre and he jumps in with her. And that, that's where God steps in and says to Satan, haha, you lose. You, you, the wager was on destroying what's good in Faust and you got there 99% of the way, but you, you lost at the end. From a, an ethical, like philosophical perspective, you could argue that maybe there's nothing actually good in him jumping in the fire. It's just a kind of moment of peak shame. But mm. yeah, how you look at that, I guess, is open to interpretation. I watched the film with commentary a while ago too that, that came with two scholars, two Murnau scholars, oh, interesting. talking about it. And um, they were talking about how he actually changed the... The ending, and I can't remember, but I think this ending of Faust jumping in is different to Goethe's version. Mm. For some reason, Murnau decided that he wanted a different ending, and maybe, yeah, that there is a kind of strange ambivalence where humanity wins, but the characters lose and die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's blatantly religious the whole the whole thing, but um, yeah, no, it was also interesting watching that. You know, I, I watched that right after I watched the two Pabst movies. So I thought, you know, oh, if it was a Pabst heroine, it might have ended differently. <laughs> mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and that the characters aren't as interesting as Pabst's characters, I don't think. But it's the it's the mood and the, the world and the intensity of kind of the audacity of presenting the struggle for all time of, you know, the soul of man. And putting that on screen in such a naked way and succeeding, I think, largely, which is just such an epic achievement with that film. Yeah. Again, yeah, just an example of what the silent cinema was was capable of in a, in a different way, which, yeah, is, is kind of an ambition that you just don't, just I think harder, it would be so much harder to pull off when you have people talking because it, it stops them being icons and um, representations of abstract sort of, platonic states mm. of you know yeah fear or, or passion or, or greed or when people are speaking it, it sort of specifies and contextualizes them they have an accent they have a an intonation they have choice of words and it all becomes much more literal and it's just harder to yeah it's harder to pull off these sort of mythic parables yeah in terms of, you know, a scene without words that has a power that almost seems impossible to imagine any, any other way in the Dovzhenko earth, mm. when you have the woman who's thrashing and she's in grief. I mean, that scene is, mm. I mean, it's sort of on the, almost to a pitch that's just beyond the, beyond almost like what the movie can contain. Yeah. It's almost sculptural because she's just this. Yeah this iconic figure at that moment. And, and this, that's a movie, I guess, that is more explicit uh, even about conifying or kind of iconizing its mm. subjects. But, but even, even so I, I found that that scene, I always forget it's in that movie somehow because I, I think of what everyone thinks of just like all the, I always think of it as like floor to ceiling shots of figures towering and, and fruits yeah. and grain. I mean, I forget about that, that other, that other scene. Mm. Yeah. And, and looking at say, the Eisenstein film, The General Lion, I think it's also called The Old and the New, is, is almost like a, a good example of some kind of midpoint between Pabst and, and Murnau, in, in the, just in the sense of it being, in the one sense, this epic, epic mythological struggle between historical forces. And the, the, that opening scene I love, it's Eisenstein's... Um, epic of collectivization and it opens with these two brothers these farmers and one is getting married and moving away and they're splitting the, the their property and the scene goes on for about five minutes of them slowly piece by piece sawing their house in half 
and taking the the timber one of them takes you know half the timber and and goes away and, and builds fences and and I guess the the clear sort of message is that the sharing in an individualistic kind of way that impoverishes both sides mm. so it becomes this kind of epic of the advantages of collectivization and you see these workers uh, or farmers peasants slowly realizing that and being convinced to try to trust each other rather than to compete with each other and then you see the advantages that, that come from it and the the slow mechanization uh, of the of farming and they you know they can get a machine then when they all go in together to to turn milk into butter and on and on you know they, they keep advancing and they're dealing with the forces of capital that are trying to undermine them and you know poisoning the the bull that they get at one point and, and things like this but I think this film is, is so amazing because it, it is almost religious and operatic in the Soviet sort of political narrative in a way that I guess would have been expected, which is the other interesting thing about mm. the context that all these filmmakers were sort of working in. There's probably an expectation in Russia that a film does tackle the things on, on this epic a scale, but, but at the same time there's a subtlety and a sense of humour and a subversiveness almost with the way Eisenstein deals with these things that you're never quite sure if it's 100% died in the wool communist fervor or whether it is and it isn't. You know, he, he's finding ways to to provoke you as a as a viewer and to needle into your yeah your prejudices and your expectations. I just feel like there's an irony yeah to a lot of his choices too in that film that. It's yeah, it's got the kind of excess and intensity and sort of extreme quality of Faust, but the some of the the subtlety and playfulness and ambiguity of Habs. Mm. I've ordered Einstein's book. He wrote a lot, and I'm keen to read a bit about about him. But um, I, his other films like his his yeah Potemkin and Strike, and it'd be interesting to know what the context was, whether there was more pressure on him at that point to be making more kind of serious and direct you know, statements for the for the party and whether he had slightly more freedom in 29 when he made the general line that he could play a little bit more or, or whether it was, you know, his own cynicism starting to to come, you know, whether he saw what was happening in the in Russia and in the party and that it wasn't just going to automatically become this utopia. No, it, it's interesting. I mean, he's like, you just watch the movies and you just see someone who is so energized and thrilled by the possibilities of the medium that mm. he, he probably just forgets at a certain point what the assignment was <laughs> in a way, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I bet you could kind of track uh, from one film to the next. Uh, and, and then, yeah, the, from the perspective of like a new country, it's a blessing and a curse to have someone that talented working. I mean, it, it sort of, it, it slips out of your grasp at a certain point. So yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, Vertov is like almost like that as well. And I mean, in certain points, like, I don't even know what he's trying to communicate on a theoretical level because it's just so mm. much fun to watch things just yeah. speeding along, watch the bread go backwards. I love all of it. You know, it's like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the machinery, the the cranes kind of, you know, moving across the that amazing shot of, um, I think we're he fixes the camera to to all these these machinery, you know, these arms of, of machines and things, and yeah, it takes kind of motion to a whole new level. Yeah, in my fantasy world, the uh, Fast and Furious is cribbed from from Veritoff in some way, but I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, there is hundreds more silence we could we could talk about. There's so many that I still haven't seen, and um, I'm just a bit rapacious at the moment and um yeah i feel like i've just stumbled into this this aladdin's cave of of uh, amazing things and um just want to want to keep going really uh i feel like there's more to there's just more to find and it's and and also i'm really looking forward to going back to i guess films from the 40s 50s 60s with a new perspective mm. i was thinking and and beyond you know like i was thinking Watching Podovkin's mother and also Boris Barnett, like and and Eisenstein, yeah, like the, the general line. It, and thinking about Alexei German and the way he, I don't want to say dehumanizes, but people 
particularly I'm thinking in a film like Hard to Be a God, but I guess mm-hmm. in all of his films, people that people are sort of these animated props almost, you know, sometimes the background element, people, yeah. they're, they're ghoulish or cartoonish or, and I always thought that was, yeah, so original and so interesting and, and, and it is um, presenting people almost as we see them in real life where we're walking around and the people in the background, they're not, they're not totally real to us until until we know them, and he he kind of presents people as as being part of somehow part of like just a, another colorful feature in a, in a landscape for the camera to pour over. Yeah, but going back and seeing some of the yeah the Russian silent cinema, I can see the through line there, and yeah, I'm just interested to go back to a lot of a lot of filmmakers with a sort of new a new context or something for for maybe where they were coming from with with some things. Um, particularly, I suppose the, the filmmakers that are more interested in in abstraction, you know, of mm. an abstraction of of human behavior, like the Straub sort of Brasonian, Pasolini kind of, uh, or Girard, or people like this. That there's a kind of attempt to abstract human interaction and human being. Yeah, that I'm seeing a link to silent film that I'd never really thought about before. Now. I'm excited to have, I hope this year to have much more time to watch, watch a lot of stuff. Yeah. Do you ever do that thing where you watch, you know, part of a sound film with the sound off just to see like the compositions and stuff or the tempo? Um, I probably should have tried that with, I've done that a little bit with, with silent films when the soundtrack was mm. pissing me off. Sometimes they're really bad, Yeah. but um, I've never done that with a, a sound film. I'm too addicted to sound. I have to say. <laughs> um, even with silent films, when the soundtrack is really hitting the mark, it's just, I just love it so much. And that's a mystery as well, because that had nothing to do with the person who made the film. Right. If they could be lifted out of their coffins and brought back to life and they were shown some of these reinterpretations, they might be like, that's disgusting. What have you done? <laughs> uh, you've ruined my movie. Uh, who knows? Yeah. But some of those choices really make, elevate the films to, to new places. So. Yeah, when sound and image works, it can be really amazing. I, I guess what I'm addicted to with sound is the feeling of being carried away, mm. you know, in a movie. And when you when you mute a soundtrack or something, you know, it's it's a more kind of technical, sober, rational way of like deconstructing choices and things. Which, right? Yeah, it's not always so fun, and I I'm a hedonist. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah. I, I mean, also like, I mean, I think of some scenes in your, in in your feature in friends and strangers where it's funny you use the phrase like carried away. There are scenes where I'm carried away. I'm just trying to see where is this going to go? You know, when, (laughs) you know, when they're talking and especially when you have these garrulous characters that they encounter, where are they going to go with? And there's such an open possibility, like the guy in the camping ground who, Mm. ask them the time i i don't you know and then yeah yeah they gets mad at them when they don't have a working <laughs> but he was the one that asked i mean those sort of like simple like little mobius strips of like absurdity in life i just really love that um and then of course the wealthy guy with the, the house that whole sequence is just yeah what i have to ask what is that guy's story is, is as an actor or a person yeah no his name's greg zimbulis his story is that he's not trained actor and I met him in 2012 when I well I'd met him before uh, because he he's a neighbor uh, of sorts but really he my connection to him was that my younger brother uh, was best friends with his son uh, at primary school and then they both went to high school together but they weren't really that like they weren't best buddies anymore mm-hmm. but they he through that early experience he'd become kind of a family friend but not someone that I personally had much to do with. It was more just like my younger brother and my, my parents. But when I was making my short film, my uni film, mm-hmm. and had no idea what I was going to do with, with the casting of, of this sort of neighbour character, mum told me that Greg had heard that I was making a film and was really keen to do an audition. He'd always wanted to give acting a go. And I was like, oh, God, this is the <laughs> beginning of, of the nightmare of, of casting. And, and the worst that I hate casting, to be honest, I mm. hate the feeling of being in a room with someone where 
probably 99 times out of 100, it's not going to be right. And I would love to get to a point where I don't have to, have to do that anymore. But so my, my fear of that sort of disappointment of it not working out for anyone was there when I met Greg and that probably the, the prejudice was so strong that actually in the moment I, I recorded it, but in the moment I was like, this is terrible. God, this guy's, this guy's crap. He's, it's embarrassing. I can't wait till he goes. And then later looking at the tape with the, the producer that I was working with for that film, she was like, he's amazing. <laughs> and then it kind of clicked. And um, Greg, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I, I had those, those early judgments, <laughs> but um, it's, it's my prejudice. But yeah, then we did that film and he was just, he just smashed it out of the park. And I wrote this part for him. I had his voice in my, in my head, but yeah, he's not an actor. He just has, but he is an actor. He's, he's incredible. And he has this ability to make whatever lines. Yeah. I, I gave him just feel like they're his thoughts, you know, that, that yeah. they weren't written for him and to make sometimes clumsy lines of dialogue, very yeah, effortless. And no matter what I wrote and sometimes they'd be like, Oh, we've got to change this. Cause it's a bit, that just won't sound good. And he'd, he'd say it and it would just sound effortless, which I guess is all you can ever ask for from a performer, um, someone that makes things that are written sound not written. Right. And some people have said, yeah, about, about the film that in a kind of critical way that it sounds like it was all just made up on the spot. Whether you like it or don't, uh, the fact that it was so carefully scripted, if it does have that quality of sounding like it's being made up on the spot, that, I think that's, that's really good. Yeah, I have to agree. <laughs> it's a real, really deft job of, 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 of writing scenes like that. And the way that actor is able to kind of use the lines as a way to just goosing along the scene and, and that dynamic that he has of kind of goosing things along. The productive ways that, that kind of just runs into the, the wall of the main <laughs> actor's uh, diffidence mm. is, is just great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really, um, everyone on set was having a lot of fun for the, that part of the film when we were shooting the chemistry between this bully figure who's also wanting to be this young guy's like best friend in a weird way and you can't you can't work out whether he he hates him or, or <laughs> right. I, loves him like that. I, I sort of loved yeah, wanted every almost every relationship in the film to be like do do they like each other, do they love each other, do they hate each other? What is the relationship between these people? And I think that yeah, those two, it was really, <laughs> sparks were flying. It was really, just everything was funny, I guess. Yeah. Probably because it was so, it's such an ordinary situation too, like that feeling of being out of your depth with someone from the older the older generation who you're in mm. there on their home ground and you're not in a position to defend yourself or speak up for yourself if they're, if they're insulting you or making fun of you and, and you're already a kind of a fairly shy sort of person I feel like in Australia, particularly like we, for people in the arts in a country that doesn't really have much uh, regard for, for that as a career choice, mm. it's sort of a constant situation that you find yourself in when you have to sort of justify your, your existence as someone who's maybe not, doesn't know where, where your, your income's coming from in the next 12 months. And it's like, well, why the fuck would you, would you choose that life? Like, and they expect <laughs> right. an answer. It's not just a, <laughs> it's not just a, a rhetorical question. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I mean, in that scene, there's also the sense that you know, guy's character is, I mean, seems to have been some kind of entrepreneur, some kind of he somehow hustled in a savvy way some deals or something. So the sense that he made something out of sort of nothing. That's also, I mean, for a younger generation, it's that's interesting. That generational conflict. It's like, why can't you do what I did? Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. So, yeah, but I mean, of course, I don't know. My, my retort would be that artists also, you know, make something where nothing was there as well. So, mm. um, and mm. I, I do less than nothing because I just watch it all. Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I would just want to ask one, one little thing. I mean, I'm curious, you're, you're based in, uh, in Melbourne, right? Or oh, Sydney, Sydney. No, no, no. I did live in Melbourne Okay. for a while, but yeah. um, I grew up in Sydney went to Melbourne and, and back in Sydney, came back to Sydney to make the film really um, because yeah, it's such an expensive drawn out thing. Yeah. Having the support of family and friends and just those things that are sort of cliches, but filmmaking is such a collaborative thing and you need the, the goodwill and 
assistance of, of so many people in so many different ways that doing it where I had people that I had relationships with was just, it just made sense for the first one anyway. Yeah. And also Sydney is, I guess it's a, it's a film about Sydney and I'd only been living in Melbourne a little while and Melbourne there's a lot of things that are the same, but a lot of things that are different. I just didn't have confidence to make kind of sweeping gestures about the, the character of the city or the people in it uh, in Melbourne as, as I felt like I could maybe get away with in Sydney a little more, knowing it better. Yeah. What's distinct about, uh, what's distinct about Sydney? Sydney is, is sort of despised by every other city in the country. Oh. <laughs> it's the richest, it's the most beautiful physically, uh, ge- geographically, just that the harbour and the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House, and it's it's surrounded on every side by stunning national parks. It's always had an obsession with property because of that. There's this kind of, yeah, obsession that's been there since since the officers of the British Navy mm. uh, realised how, how stunning the harbour was and started kind of jockeying for the best spots and, you know, for land grants and things around around the harbour and, and further back in the agricultural heartland behind, just behind Sydney. Mm. Uh, but it's always, ever since, it's nothing's changed, you know, there's just always been an obsession with wealth uh, that you can get through trading property, but also just having property in a, in a nice position with a nice view of the harbour that a lot of the other capital cities don't have so much. Melbourne is not geographically, um, physically, you know, stunning in, in the way Sydney is. So it's, I guess, built an identity more around, this is very reductive and kind of, you know, you, you could sort of present counterviews to all these things, but yeah, a more, more cultured city that has its identity wrapped around the things that people do and say and, and write and rather than how much money they have and yeah, what, mm. what how successful they are and, and how big their house is. So Sydney's seen as, yeah, kind of an arrogant, superficial, uh, annoying sort of. <laughs> uh, these were things that I felt familiar with and thought, you know, after living in Melbourne, really felt were, were true in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so wanted to make a film. Yeah. Yeah. But you have your, your people there with in film. Yeah, it's it's funny. Like the film world's so small in, in Australia that... I don't know what I'd be saying if I'd never lived in Melbourne because I think I know I know a lot of people and have a lot of connections from other cities because of that time, mm. meeting people who'd moved. Because a lot of people from Brisbane go to Melbourne, people from Adelaide go to Melbourne and skip. You know, people don't really come to Sydney as young artists or filmmakers unless they want jobs in the industry, you know, working as ad directors or that sort of thing, the commercial side of it. But Melbourne's always been the, the heart of film culture well, maybe that's debatable. Like in, in the Sydney in the seventies, there was the Sydney Film Co-op and mm. a really lively art community that crossed borders between cinema and painting and other things. But now, definitely, sort of the heartland is Melbourne with Melbourne Cinematheque and the Australian Centre for the Moving Image is down in Melbourne. Just seems, yeah, Senses of Cinema is, is based down there, and it just seems to be a different a different feeling to to Sydney. Sometimes you, you feel a little bit lonely in, in Sydney and everything feels a bit fragmented and there's no there's no center for film culture here physically or figuratively so I I don't know how long I want to stay in Sydney but I, I think there are connections yeah between the cities that are definitely there in film just because it is a smaller artistic community compared to say the art world or the, the music world which traditionally has been very very separated i don't want to speak in too many generalizations but yeah sorry it's unfair question (laughs) no 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 but it's yeah in a lot of ways the cities are quite siloed and there's like sort of rivalries between the cities and they don't want a a successful band from sydney could be huge in sydney but go to melbourne and no one will turn up and vice versa and the cities don't want to kind of acknowledge bands from other states because it's (laughs) sort of like a it somehow is like a big competition or something. Mm. But yeah, it's it's not absolute in that way, of course. There's there's so many exceptions. Yeah. Well yeah, thanks for indulging my my curiosity about it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, I mean it was really great. I feel very lucky that uh, we were able to talk in the least. No, no, it's all right. It's yeah. so fun. Yeah. Um, thank you for having me. No, thank you for coming on and 
Yeah. Now I also kind of rekindling for me the, the urge to watch watch these movies. I love it and I also even love the the absurdity of it sometime in, in like one day watching and being in the Russian Revolution and then mm. being in, you know, in some messianic moment of plague <laughs> and then yeah. it gives birth to a right of you know good and evil and that <laughs> And then, yeah, I don't know, a Soviet collective or something. Well, I guess I'm back to Russia in that case. But anyway, you get the picture um, all, <laughs> yeah. all over. And I guess one of the yeah wonderful things of the last 30, 40 years or so, well, longer really, but for me, like Kiristami was such a big thing in smashing down the, the like centers of where we expect films to come from. Mm-hmm. Not that he was the first Iranian filmmaker, but I guess just in some ways being like the voice for a period there in the, in the nineties, you know, that it was like, this is cinema, this is what everyone should be looking at. And, you know, it just often being about little Iranian villages and it's incredible about power um, to feel like I know countries, you know, and I haven't, I've never been there. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure what I think I know is, is, is garbage and I don't really know anything, but that feeling of like, Oh, where I understand you. And just that feeling is, is, is a great feeling. I kind of am just like a naturally, <laughs> uh, for better or worse, kind of a utopian kind of idealistic person. So I'm always looking to how connections can be made and how we can break out of those kind mm. of silos. And so, totally. so yeah, I'm I'm kind of always, I don't like to assume what people want to, are going to like, you know, I, I, I'll, mm. I'll, you know, so I like to share it and then, you know, they'll, hopefully they'll be into it. Um, but anyway, I don't yeah. know. No, it's one of the special one of the amazing things about film over say a culture based around, I don't know, going to going to a gallery to see an original piece of artwork or going to a theater and seeing a special one-off performance that won't tour anywhere else is Mm. yeah. It's just that ability to cross boundaries and, and build connections between people and places that, that otherwise wouldn't be. And, And between time periods too, like, Mm. but yeah between decades and yeah i always found that so amazing that time traveling sort of space traveling power of of cinema which can build a shared sense of humanity uh, between people and groups that have almost nothing in common except their humanity yeah yeah absolutely yeah well we can probably bring it in for a landing i like to kind of plug the work and make sure people can follow up with it do you know where friends and strangers will screen next in australia uh there's a lot i can't say oh okay of course um, right, right. but we have signed with grasshopper films in the states and it will have a release sometime down the track which is really special and we're great. so excited to be um partnering with with them because it's uh, that's just another dream come true really like that so much of what's on there their lineup is just like yeah just the stuff i love so much oh yeah so I don't know when that's going to be, but there will be a chance to see stuff again in, in the States. That's terrific. So yes, something to look forward to. James, thanks. <laughs> no, no, something I'd rather be doing. Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Have a great afternoon or evening. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets, for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.